What is it about uniting residential care that makes it so special? It's more than just a job to us. Everyone who works here genuinely cares for their residents and we are all like one big family. That is what is important to me, that the residents know I'm always there for them. If you're looking for a supportive community that respects your individuality, we're here for you. Visit uniting.org today or call 1800 864 846. Oldie Goodie is a podcast series created for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a replacement for psychological assessment and treatment. Always consult your own healthcare professional. This episode also contains conversations about death and dying that some listeners may find upsetting. If you think you might find the topic triggering, you may want to give this one a miss and we'll see you next episode. my 62nd birthday I, I sat up in bed and said I know what I want to do I want to sing in a band <laughs> what I like about end of life is generally all the garbage falls away and you're left with the core of the person just because you look a little bit different on the outside doesn't mean that you've changed on the inside hello and welcome to oldie goodie a podcast series that celebrates aging and all that comes with it I'm Nikki Buckley, wife and mother of three young men now, but perhaps better known to many of you for my years as television host on the game show Sale of the Century. But now I am so happy to be here as co-host of Oldie Goodie with you, Matt, as we explore some of the interesting life changes we experience as we age. And I'm Matt Ferguson, husband, father of two, surfer, and I work with Uniting. I'm passionate about understanding how we can help people to age well. On each episode of Oldie Goodie, Matt and I, together with some amazing guests, will be diving a little deeper into some of the more positive sides of ageing, because after all, getting older is just a part of life. Carking it, kicking the bucket, crossing over, moving on, shuffling off the mortal coil, going belly up. That's right. Today's episode is all about death and dealing with death, because whether we like it or not, it's a certainty of life. In past episodes, we've talked about things that are designed to improve our lives, to extend our lives, and how we can age well. But inevitably, like everything, there is an end, and that end is death. So today, we're going to talk about death. Yeah, Matt, and I think it's, it's why it's important to be having this conversation today, because death and dying is often a taboo topic. But when I was researching for this interview, I found that in a lot of cases, you know, with the right knowledge, it is actually possible to have a death that is consistent with your values. And we are going to be learning a lot more about what that actually means today with our guest. Joining us in the studio is Dr. Sarah Winch. Sarah's going to answer all our questions about death. Sarah is the author of the best-selling book, The Best Death, How to Die Well. She's also the former head of medical ethics at the University of Queensland. And Dr. Sarah has spent decades working in end-of-life healthcare, and she joins us now. So, Sarah, we feel so privileged to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for the invitation for having me. We've just been discussing your extensive career, but would you mind sharing how you have personally experienced death in your life? Well, it goes back a long way. I started really thinking about end of life when my close friend died in 1981. I was a trainee nurse at the time and she asked me a lot of questions about dying. She had cancer. She'd had it for seven years, the seven years that I knew her. 
We knew she was dying. We weren't quite sure when it was going to happen. And I was a close support person for her. But being not yet 20 and not very experienced, I really didn't know much about death and dying at all. And I really felt after she died that I needed to know more about it. I did feel a bit lacking in my own knowledge. So after that, I really began to become interested in death and dying, discovered palliative care, and then worked in an adult palliative care unit for a while. And really the theme of death and dying and how to improve people's experience of death and dying became very central to my work. That then went forward to when my husband was diagnosed when I was 46. He was diagnosed with a very late cancer, only lived for a few months. But I can remember really clearly walking back from leaving him in the hospital when he'd been diagnosed thinking, this time I know things. I know things and this man, I can't keep him with me, even though it's what I would want more than anything and what he wanted and the children wanted, but I can give him a good death because in the period of time from when my girlfriend had died to when Lincoln died, I knew that I had accumulated a lot more knowledge. And so that was very reassuring for him. I mean, he'd been part of that journey as well. You know, at different times he'd said to me, look, I think you've just got to leave the dying stuff alone and move on to something different in terms of your work. That really helped with that. And that, that motivated me then after he died to do more in the death literacy movement because that had become emerged since that time from way back in 1981, that time when I was first exposed to death and dying. No one was talking about it at all. And now people were talking about it. So there was quite a long period there where I wasn't emotionally involved or pers- deeply personally involved. But then again, of course, it came with my husband, two years later, my mother, just earlier this year, my father, and then I've had numerous friends as well. One of my closest friends says it can be tricky being your friend because they do tend to die. And I said, yeah, I noticed that. So yeah, I have had quite a long involvement. You just mentioned death literacy. Could you explain that concept to us? Well, death literacy is is understanding the dying process, understanding what's available to you. It's the ability to have knowledge to make a difference to your end of life. So the thing about literacy generally is it gives us power, it gives us information, we're able to get across things. And so death literacy means demystifying death, finding out what's going on, finding out how we can chart our own death as best as we can with what's available to us. And I do always put that caveat in about what's available to us. We might have an idea, for example, that we want a good death. We want that death to be in an intensive care unit where we have a nurse and a doctor on call all the time, and that's the sort of death that we want. We know that for many people, they won't die in an intensive care unit. People are very careful who they admit to intensive care units, and they generally want to know that they can get out at the other end. Or we might be a single person with not much families thinking, I want to die at home. We know that that's going to be a very difficult thing to do because you generally need, we've found from research, to have five able-bodied adults to be helping you at home, to have a good death at home. So then what do we mean by a good death? So I think a good death will vary from person to person. For many people, it's champagne and morphine. For others, it's being with their children and not, particularly if it's younger children, not having a lot of morphine, maybe putting up with a bit more pain so that they can interact more with young children. So I think it's very personal about your own idea of what, what's going to work for you. And part of death literacy is thinking about that, thinking about really basic core concepts of living, like what's important to me? What are my values? I don't have much time left. 
How am I going to enact those values and get a really good death? How have I been bent out of shape? And I think when you get these catastrophic diagnoses, which are quite shattering, you suddenly realise, hang on a moment, I've got six months, 12 months, a year, three days left. There are some things I want to do or there are some ways I want to be in this next time. So death literacy is all about that, really about a consideration of life as much as death. It's totally fascinating and so much information. Just one thing that that kind of resonated with me was that bit about pain relief or not, you know, at, at the, I guess, the last dying hours. And some people, you said with younger children, like wanting to be more alert with them. So, I mean, I have a personal experience with, with my family and with my dear mum. I'm one of six children and we lost her about 14 years ago. But, you know, it was very much about those last hours. She had all of us, the six kids and, and dad, you know, all kind of, you know, sitting around on the bed. Of course, dad wanting to, you know, make sure that she had a good night's sleep or wasn't in pain. Like he was like, he, you know, at the certain, at the right time, brought in her pills. And she was like, no, no, no more pills, no more pills. And he's like, come on, love, you know, just, and I, I can't remember if it was the sleeping pill or the pain relief. And so she is a, you know, a good wife took them to make him feel happier. But what I noticed was the minute his head was turned, she turned her head to the side of the pillow and used her fingers and, and slipped them out of her <laughs> mouth, you know, because this is her, you know, her last dying mm. hours, her moments with her children, and she wanted to be present. And I saw it happen. I thought, I'll just let that one go. She's in control here of what she wants. And yeah, it was just amazing to watch her see, you know, to see her to do that and still be in control of how she wanted to spend those last hours. That's a wonderful story and all power to your mother. Yeah. It's one of the things I think clinicians struggle with a little bit. They say, well, look, you know, they haven't taken their medication and, and they need to do that. We need to keep them on track. We need to make sure that the levels of pain relief in their blood are at the correct level. And if they stop taking them, then we're going to have to do catch up. And yet very often I would find with particularly younger mothers in hospital and their children were coming up, they would say, I don't want that dose. Please don't give me that 12 o'clock dose. I'll put up with it. We'll catch you up in the evening when they're gone. But I just really want to be full and present in my children's lives at yeah. this point in time. And I guess from what you've shared with us just then is that mm. that commitment to your children doesn't go away. So it's lovely to hear that. Yeah, it was lovely to be a part of. Now, I have heard you talk about in past areas the death cafe, and it sounds completely morbid, but I believe it's not. So could you explain a little bit more about, you know, the death cafe and, and what happens when you go to one? Sure. So death cafe is a worldwide movement. So it's a community education movement, and it's basically people who get together over a cup of tea, coffee and cake, and talk about death. And you can talk about anything. So there's no set schedule for a death cafe. They're not scripted. They're not structured in any way. They run all around the world, as I said, and they run very regularly. We then in Queensland developed a new form of death cafe, which is called Wine and Die, which is where we have a glass of alcohol and we talk about end of life. And that has been very popular to run with clinicians and at conferences. And I run that with medical students regularly. And they talk about how they feel when they first have to deal with end of life and death and dying and the confronting aspects of it. Is it a mix of people that have gone through, experience a loved one dying and need to kind of debrief and other people that are experiencing it at the time? So it's learning off, off others? 
It's definitely a mix of people. Whoever decides to come to a death cafe is drawn to it for for a particular reason. And I always say to people when they're first running them, don't be upset if someone's sitting there not saying anything because sometimes they're drawn to the death cafe, but they're not saying anything. And there's no obligation to say anything. So at the end of the death cafe, they might come up to me and say, actually, I've had a diagnosis, I'm dying or I've just experienced death and I'm grieving and I'm here, but they're not meant to be a debriefing grief tool. They are not a therapeutic initiative in that sense. They're a community initiative. Do you think that the way modern hospitals treat death and dying well has changed over time? And what are some of the things that hospitals are doing to support people now in those end-of-life moments? So I think that as hospitals have been redesigned, we've seen some wonderful ways that they can support people. Going back to when I worked in hospitals, we did try very much to support end of life. Public hospitals do a very good job in providing good end of life care. What we've found in Queensland particularly, and I'm imagining this goes through Australia, is some of the hospitals have been designed really well so they've created beautiful spaces and places. So, for example, the Gold Coast Hospital attached to their intensive care unit is a beautiful breakout barbecue room. So if someone's going to have life support withdrawn, the whole family can gather there and have a barbecue, have some space together before life support's withdrawn. We've also found a lot more animals coming into hospitals. So different hospitals allow pets in. So for example, Prince Charles Hospital Intensive Care Unit, again, allows dogs in, dogs of the owners, they have a dog. Having a therapeutic dog around is very, very popular in hospitals. In the UK, interestingly enough, they'll even allow horses in. Haven't seen that here, wondering how it would go, (laughs) but there is certainly more of a sense of trying to make the end of life time more oriented to the patient. So I see that there's a lot more of a sense of what's important outside of a strict medical model. I've heard you talk before about the sitting. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about what the sitting is and why it is important in this area. So the sitting is that period of time when you sit with the dying person up to their death. And it's a bit of a tricky time because if you sit for too long, you're going to become exhausted. So you really want it to somehow be timed in the last couple of days of the person being alive. And That's not always easy to predict, but generally we know they've become very, very sleepy. They're not eating and drinking. They're not producing urine. And a time comes when you gather together and sit. And I think it's a wonderful ritual with families. And I experienced it recently with my sister and called her up from Tasmania. And I said, look, come soon. I think we'll start the sitting to be with dad. And it was really interesting because she she arrived from the plane and came straight to the nursing home where dad was. And we sat and we were talking and dad had his eyes closed, but his eyelids were flickering and his mouth was twitching a little bit as if he could hear us. You know, here were his daughters talking to each other and we were including him in, in the conversation. And then we sat together and sat with dad who came in and out of consciousness and actually his last words were, I have loved you all so very, very much. And I was able to text those to my brother who wasn't able to come over. So the sitting is that very close personal time that you have with the dying person. I have heard of people who've sat for a week. I think that's quite lengthy, but big families that might work. 
We are only a small family, so it only tends to be a few days, but it's a really precious time to bring family in to be to spend that time. It's funny, I feel like I asked that question and now you've said that and I go, okay, well, that's exactly what we did with mum. As I said, there was, you know, six of us and yeah, I guess we had a sitting on that last day and went right into the evening and then and then I stayed overnight and it was very much getting everyone there and like, you know, we're all sitting around on, on the bed with mum and we knew, you know, you know, as you, obviously you would know in this since when it was going to be the last night kind of thing and lots of stories and lots of fun and laughter and all on the bed and, you know, kids going in and out. And when I was there having a quiet moment with mum on my own, I'll probably get emotional now. Um, and she said, um, you know, I think this is it. I don't want to, she was, she'd had enough. I don't want to wake up in the morning. And I said, oh, mum, that's okay. And she goes, well, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know how to not wake up anymore. And I said, well, mum, you just, you just go to sleep. You just close your eyes and, you know, you won't wake up because we just knew. And, you know, she said, but what about dad? And I said, that's okay. I'm staying here tonight. We'll be here with dad. It's okay. You know, and it was amazing because she had to ask my permission to go. And that was it. Like in the morning, she didn't wake up. She kind of was still there. And, and it was once again, you know, calling all the kids back. So everyone was there. But it was just a really, I guess, privileged moment to be, you know, to be able to give that permission for it, it to is. be the end. You have some wonderful conversations, don't you, when, when you know that there isn't going to be any more time. This is it. So you can have some wonderful conversations. Some people don't want a lot of people there. So when my husband was dying, our children were younger. He didn't want them there. He said, I don't want their last memories to be of me dying. Everybody has a different take on it. He wanted me there. He didn't want his mother there, which considerably upset her. But it's what they would like and how the dying person wants to frame their last moments. But many people have quite a a few people there. Another interesting thing that I've found over the years is you can be sitting there in the sitting space and go out to the bathroom or, or go and grab some food from, from the vending machine or a coffee and come back and the person has slipped away. People say, why did they do that? Why did they mm. wait till I left the room until they died? And that's not uncommon. It's as, it's as if they're saying, we can't die while you're here. We're waiting for you to leave the room. And uh, a dear friend of mine who lost his mother a few months ago was saying, you know, she just slipped away while I wasn't in the room. And, you know, how could that happen? Why didn't I just hang on? Why, why did I have to run out at that minute and make a cup of tea? And I said, well, it's just the way that it is and it's the way she wanted it to be. And that can happen as well. Yeah. It's interesting, Nikki, that you said about permission. I've had two experiences with family members of mine where both of them were not conscious they weren't awake but i and this is a couple of years apart where the same thing where i hugged them and said into their ear it's okay you can go now the family's okay you don't have to worry anymore like i'm here i'll i'll help look after them and you almost i could feel them relax into it and then it was sort of that permission thing to say it's okay to go now you can't keep worrying about them you've got to go on your journey somebody said to me oh you're a walker which I don't know if that's a term, but you know, you, you helped them go by just saying to them, yeah. There's a whole death walking movement. So the death walking movement is people who walk with those as they get close to death. And of course, we don't cross the river Styx, the old mythology of that was the river of death, but we certainly walk right to the edge and then they cross and we turn back. So there's a lovely movement about death walking and that may be where that came from. You walked mm -hmm. them right to the edge and said, it's okay, you can mm -hmm. cross the river now, 
I'll be staying here and dealing with all those matters that are concerning to you, but your journey is to cross the river now. And so that is well known in, goes across cultures, very much goes across cultures. What advice would you give, Sarah, for people who may be helping loved ones who are nearing the end of life on having those difficult conversations to start to manufacture or to plan for dying well? You know, how to make these almost slightly ritualized, like the sitting and how do you get that ball rolling? I think you need to get the ball rolling way before any of it. And that's partly why I'm here talking to you today, (laughs) is that we need to get the message out that there's a whole pile of things we can do while we're well, while we're happy, before we have to confront the inevitable of someone we love dying. There's a whole pile of things that we can do to open up those conversations. There may be some people who never open up in the sitting and they just sit there and their presence is there and that's fine. It's not a confessional space. It's not a space that has to be a particular way. It's a space of being near each other. And sometimes it's just the quietness. So with my husband, I said to him, would you like some music played? No, he didn't want music played. He was actually concentrating very much on dying. And I just sat quietly beside him. And sometimes I've found this a lot with end of life and with grief. Sometimes you don't have any words to say. So it's just easy to sit there and be there and it's your presence and you may choose to hold their hand or you may choose to be by them. I know with dad, he said to me, I'm getting really cold. He said, from my feet coming up, does this mean I'm actually dying now? Am I actually dying now, Sarah? And I said, well, I think you're starting to because you're losing your circulation. I'll put some extra blankets on. And he said, okay. So some of it's really practical. And if you're in that situation right beside the bedside, being practical is not a problem either. Making sure that the person is comfortable, making sure that, you know, you're doing what, what they would want you to do in that situation. But having a particular script for it, I think it will vary very much from person to person. I really do think the importance though of end of life and good end of life decision making and caring starts now for all of us while we're living hopefully a little way away from that end of life period. One of those family members, he just wanted me to read him Henry V. He just, he loved Shakespeare and language. And he just said, just go and get my complete works of Shakespeare and, and come back and just read to me until he fell asleep. Then that was it. That was the start of the journey. He didn't wake up from that, but that was his thing. So if, if you were to think yourself, everybody, what are the three things I'd like to have at end of life? And I know for me, I would like to have my dog there, my children there. I would like to be able to see trees if possible and be pain-free and be able to communicate. That's a few more things, I guess. I'm a bit of a talker, so I'd, I'd like to be able to talk. So everybody's going to be different. And what are the things that you would like to have right at end of life? Listening to Shakespeare, watching a sunrise, all of those beautiful things that we would love to do. It's then having the courage to articulate those or speak about them and also having the courage as the person who's sitting to ask, what would you like me to do? Is there anything I can do for you at this point in time? is also important. I think on that note as well, with what you just said, you know, having the courage to ask, what would you like me to do for you? On that note, I guess often people don't know how to help someone when they are going through that particular hard time, like watching a loved one die. And I know that, you know, you've gone through that with your husband and your parents. So how did people show up for you at that time and and help you through that? 
They were amazing, particularly with my husband dying, not so much with my parents. I think with my parents, they thought, well, you know, you're the expert. You must have been expecting this. Your parents are older. But with Lincoln dying, it was absolutely catastrophic, not just for me, but for everybody around him. And everybody was so shocked because this man was ostensibly fit. He was a triathlete. He had his own bike riding troupe. So if someone like him can be dead in four months, what hope have the rest of us got? So there was a great deal of shock and quite a few people said to me, oh, look, just let us know what we can do. The problem with that for me was my head was all over the space, very much focused on getting things organized for Lincoln, making sure the children were okay. And I didn't even know what to ask. And then a friend of mine said, are you sleeping? And I said, no, I'm not sleeping. And she said, you need Buddhist chanting meditation. She was very... uh exploring the Buddhist faith. So she would drive over on a Monday night and pick me up and we would drive and I would chant and I learned chanting meditation and it did actually give me six hours sleep a night. Then I taught it to Lincoln and in his really, some of his moments, he used it. And so that was very useful. Other people dropped meals off, particularly Zoe, my daughter was 11. So in primary school, a lot of the primary school mothers baked, which Mm. was lovely. And then other people just turned up and did things. One of my good friends, who's a professor of psychology at the time, said to me, I think we need to go for coffee. And I said, no, I can't go for coffee, Anne. I can't do that. I said, I can't leave Lincoln. And she said, you can leave him. And I said, no, I can't. What if something happened? And she said, you can leave him and you need to give that poor man some time on his own (laughs) to gather his thoughts which I thought was very good. And so I did used to, and I will be turning up and taking you down for coffee. And so that was really quite lovely as well. So there's that wonderful saying, it takes a community to raise a child or it takes a village to raise a child. I have used that, it takes a village to help someone die. You mentioned when we were talking about dying well, that the number of adults was five. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of a myth that the home death is the best death and the hospital death is the terrible death. What we tend to find is that people stay at home for as long as they can, where they can, uh, depending on their frailty. And, you know, frail people tend to die in nursing homes. But for the rest of the people who are dying at home, it's quite a big ask to die at home. You're managing the laundry, you're managing the feeding, And people get tired very quickly. And if you're an elderly person and it's your husband that's dying at home or your wife that's dying at home, then you do need quite a lot of support. You're tired often yourself and emotional. And so research has found you need about five able-bodied people to be helping out regularly to be going so that people can be there and be their best selves and not get exhausted from all the extraneous things that happen. I always say to people, I don't mind dying in hospital or a nursing home or a hospice. I've spent a lot of time in educating people at end of life. I have confidence in my teaching and I come from a very small family and there aren't a lot of us. And I think that, you know, dying in a hospital or a nursing home is not necessarily bad. And I think that's really important to get people across. You can have a good death in a hospital and a nursing home and hospice generally, they're fantastic, but we don't have as many of those in Australia, as well as having a good death at home. In your eyes, what's the most beautiful thing about death? I'm a truth teller and what I like about end of life is generally all the 
garbage falls away and you're left with the core of the person and you can have that essential communication. And I love that about it. The actual physical process of dying, when someone's actually dying, when you see the spirit leave the body and you feel it, and I've felt it over many, many deaths, I've seen and felt the spirit leave the body and so have many nurses and palliative care people working at end of life. You can actually feel and see that person moving on to the next place. That's extraordinary. And that's been an enormous privilege. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. It has been totally a fascinating topic for conversation. And we really appreciate your time and your expertise in sharing, you know, all your knowledge about death literacy today. Thank you for the invitation. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I really do hope that the listeners of this podcast are encouraged to engage more with End of Life Matters. Matt, that was such a great conversation and it's so hard not to get emotional when discussing things like this and particularly when you've had personal experience. And I've never spoken much about that fact that my siblings and I were all sitting on mum's bed and we seriously saw her soul, her spirit depart like wow. within uh, moments. And it's yep. yeah, it's something that's kind of, you don't, like I said, you don't talk about much because you think people are going to think you're a weirdo, but it was so powerful. And then like having had that conversation now and hearing about, you know, all the different ways to prepare for death, I'm really happy, I guess, that although we didn't know what we were doing, I really feel like we did prepare for a good death for mum. Like, and, and she kind of orchestrated it the way that she wanted it to unfold and, you know, I'm one of six kids. She wanted all of us there and we were there. She wanted to be at home and she was there. You know, she wouldn't take her pills on the last night because she wanted to be present for those last minutes. She asked my permission how to not wake up in the morning, you know. So, there are so many beautiful ways to prepare for dying and to help others, you know, help ourselves. And yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And it's it's amazing that we Probably even without realizing it as it's happening, we may actually do the right things. Like your mother may not have thought Mm. deeply about it, but she actually just naturally did all the right things to make it it right for her. And it sounds like it's one of those experiences that you don't want it to happen, but at least the way it happened was the right way. Yeah. And it's it's great that we have had these chats that we can help others prepare for a good death. Yeah, and we can we can demystify some of the the feelings and some of the I mean I I know some of the things that Sarah said around the the number of people that you know it's the appropriate number of people because there are I found when I was going through the death of my ex-father-in-law that I had to step in and be the the practical one for the family. Mm. So just making sure that people got to the hospital that there was milk in the fridge, that there was food. And then it was only after that I could actually then relax and experience it. You've got to just kind of step into those roles and nobody appoints that. You just got to, you've got to look out and, and, and make it all happen, I guess. So this whole concept of dying well is, I, I just, I, wow, I was just blown away by that whole conversation. So it was great to be part of it. You feel privileged. I, agree. I, I think we've got the best job in the world at the moment. <laughs> yes, we're learning lots. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
We're joined now by clinical psychologist Melissa Levi. Now, Melissa works and specializes in older people's mental health and dementia, and she's with us in the studio today to share some more information on how to deal with death. So, welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Mel. Hi. Now, look, we've just heard from Dr. Sarah Winch who talked to us about the importance of death literacy, but in real life, like how would we actually deal with those conversations when you learn that a loved one is dying? Nikki, that is a great question and it's certainly something that a lot of the clients that I see and their families struggle with and if I'm completely honest, when I first started my career, it was something that my own family struggled with. So, I guess the first thing I'd like to mention is that ideally, we want to be having these conversations about death and dying long before we're actually facing death. Now, for those of you who might be listening that have a loved one who is terminally ill, please don't think that you have missed the boat. It is truly never too late to have these conversations, but ideally, the earlier the better because it gives us time to pause, to reflect, and often, you know, when we're healthy and well, we're better able to articulate our wishes. So, how do we do it? Yeah. So, Nikki and Matt, just throwing to both of you, at the moment, how would you approach these sorts of conversations with with your parents or with your loved ones? Well, if I, if I think about the, the attitudes of my mum and my dad are so different in terms of my dad, he's 83, wants to live to 150. And he's the guy in those cliched soldier movies where the uh, sergeant always says to the new recruits, do you guys want to live forever? My dad would be the voice that said yes. So yeah. I think for him, if he has to go, it's probably he's, he's a sailor. It's on his boat, you know, Valhalla style. Love and it. my mum, I kind of think that if death knocked on the door, my mum would say, not today. Come back and scare death away. So, (laughs) no, we haven't had these conversations, but that's how they think. Yeah, we definitely haven't, say, with my my dad. And and as we, you know, I've spoken about, my mum passed away some time ago. And it wasn't until she was diagnosed that we started talking about, you know, she showed us which pictures she wanted on the front of her card, you know, and which songs we were going to play, you know, in the church and things like that. But it's a really important topic that you bring up and that I should have this conversation with my father and say, hey, dad, you know, when the time comes, how would you like, you know, it to unfold so that we can, you know, start the conversation now? But yeah, it is a tough one. Absolutely. Because I think, I think, you know, my, my family, certainly there was this hope that if we avoided conversations of death, we could almost avoid death Mm. itself. And unfortunately, as a a granddaughter and as a, a clinical psychologist, I've come to learn that that isn't quite how it works. All we end up doing is really depriving ourselves of the opportunity to afford those we love a a beautiful death and a death that's consistent with their wishes. So the first thing I say to people is that often these conversations have been really sort of sterile, you know, they're had, you know, on medical wards or in this sort of very serious environment because it's very serious, heavy content. And I guess the first thing that I have found is to put everyone at ease is have it around the dinner table or pop the kettle on and sit on the couch together. It doesn't need to be this ominous, foreboding, you know, formal conversation. One of my clients said, I said, you know, pop the kettle on. And she said, why would I put on the kettle? I don't need that for a glass of wine. So, (laughs) you know, just, I guess, uh, try to make it, I guess, informal. 
It's also important to know that this isn't a one-off conversation. This is a conversation that's going to evolve over time because people's wishes and values can change over time. Your knowledge um, and your health changes over time. So it's important to keep checking in. Some of the questions that you might want to ask is around, you know, what's really important to you at the end of your life? You know, what, what things would you like around you? Would you like to be surrounded by your family and, and your friends? And then there are really specific questions like whether you want music, you know, how somebody wants to be uh, buried. Do they want to be buried or cremated? And there are even these new, I think, bio burials where you can be buried in a special pod that, you know, blossoms into a tree and all of those questions. There, there are often also questions around medical interventions. I remember reading an article some years ago now by a Dr. Ashley Witt, who was training to be a geriatrician, and she was working in the emergency department, and she said something along the lines of, the day you meet me in the emergency department will be one of the worst days of your life. And having to make decisions for a parent under those circumstances can just be so traumatic and stressful. So these conversations can help us avoid, I suppose, that outcome. What I often find helpful as well, a lot of people say, oh, you know, and my dad has said this, oh, if I get dementia, you know, it's all over. If I have a stroke, it's all over. The problem with that, though, is that dementia can look so different Mm. and you can still experience very rich quality of life and meaning and joy with a diagnosis of dementia. A stroke can be vastly different. Somebody can end up, you know, quite significantly um, impaired or disabled, whereas another person can experience quite significant recovery. So, the question that I find a little bit more helpful is rather than focusing on diagnosis, thinking about what are the outcomes that are acceptable to you? You know, saying to mum and dad, you know, what what are some of the outcomes that are acceptable to you? How would you want to live? You know, if you needed support to be able to breathe, you know, if you were um, physically confined to a, a chair or a bed, you know, what, what what are some of those eventualities and and what is acceptable to you? Something that can be really helpful in facilitating these conversations is also having them with your doctors. So ultimately, your doctors really need to know your wishes around the end of your life and around how you'd like to die because they can be really important in facilitating a death that is consistent with your values and something that can be quite beautiful. And it can be something that you can all do together. It can be somewhat of an enjoyable experience. Like if it is more in the later stages where you do know that someone's, you know, inevitably dying, working on, you know, that day or the funeral or whatever and, and going back with them over their lives and picking great moments and they're with you, you know, deciding on those bits and, and choosing, you know, the music and, and things like that. I mean, we had Neil Diamond blasting out of the church when mum passed and, you know, we all just started singing and dancing in the front couple of rows. I'm sure a few people thought, what's going on? But it made it more joyful. Absolutely. And I think that's the really important thing about these conversations is that often from the outside looking in, you think, oh my gosh, how how am I even going to begin, you know, to broach such a difficult subject? But there can be a lot of joy and meaning found in these conversations. You know, it allows people to touch on their legacy. It allows them to impart things that perhaps they they haven't yet put into words or had the opportunity to say. 
I found now that I'm more comfortable with having these conversations, it can be something that really strengthens relationships and brings people closer together. It's interesting what you said, Nikki, that about the music, because as we were having this conversation, I thought that is a great way to start a conversation with your loved ones is to say, all right, let's just think about the funeral. What would you like to happen on that day? What's the music? What are the, what are the things? What are the, and then we can move back to the dying part, you know, which yeah. is often the difficult part of the conversation. But if you start at that end point, even with what photos do you want me to put up? Do you, does your hair look good in that photo? Is that the photo we blow up for the, for the, for the doorway? You know, is there a charity that you want people to donate to or, or, or flowers or how do, how do you want it? What music, Neil Diamond, which, which ABBA tracks are they, <laughs> whatever it is. And then you kind of can then move the conversation back to the other bits. The subject's more difficult to broach around, you know, turning off life support or dementia or things that are happening. So maybe that's just a nice way to ease into it. I think that's a beautiful idea. And, and I think, look, everybody's different, but it can be a very bonding, uniting, beautiful conversation. Is there any services out there that might help people? Say you're just an only child and you don't have a support network and you want to have this conversation. Is there, is there ways to push that along? Absolutely. So you can reach out to an organisation called Advanced Care Planning Australia and they can sort of give you information and walk you through step by step the process of making plans for your, for your end of life and your death. It's also often really helpful to reach out to your GP if you've got a good relationship with a GP. And if you don't yet have a GP and you are on your own, this is for everyone, but perhaps particularly those who are on their own, it's really, really important as you travel the aging journey, find a good GP, find someone who can be your companion along that path. The other people that you can turn to are palliative care physicians. Now, when you hear the term palliative care, what what do you tend to think of? The very end. Yeah. The very, yeah. per, Nikki, perfect. <laughs> so exactly. So when I mention palliative care to some of my clients or, or my patients, they sort of look at me with these big deer in the headlights eyes and think, oh my gosh, are you telling me that I'm nearing the end? No, 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 no. So the scope of palliative care has increased significantly in recent decades and their goal now is to promote quality of life. And often it is sort of in the later decades of one's life. It's if you have a condition where you're not receiving active treatment. So it's not something that we're necessarily curing, but it's something that you're going to live with. And we know that we can optimize your symptoms and your quality of life. So we can optimize pain management and keep you doing the things that matter to you and that make life worth living. They're a really special group of people, palliative care physicians, to have these sorts of conversations with. Also, because they have intimate knowledge of what is available to you at the end of your life and in death so that you can die in a way that is dignified, that is pain-free and that's in keeping with your wishes. So they're fantastic if you reach out to them and big sort of local hospitals, public hospitals will have a palliative care department. So if you need some guidance on how to access that information, you can give them a bell as well. Thanks for joining us, Mel. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate always, it. Always, always a pleasure.
Well, Matt, that's it for today's episode of Oldie Goodie, and it was a big one. Plenty for us to digest on our travels home. And for more information on anything that we've discussed today or to find out any more about Sarah Winch's amazing book, head to oldiegoodie.com.au. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's really thought provoking. And I, I've, I've, since we've been researching and, and looking at this episode, I have thought a bit about it. And I think in terms of funerals, I'd like it to be a celebration of life. I heard uh, from a friend that they actually had the coffin out in a backyard and all the kids came along and painted it and they covered it with flowers and, and made it a really nice celebration. I'd obviously, yep, some, some nice loud music some uplifting stuff and then cremated and scattered at my favourite surf spot which um, I can't reveal because it's a secret spot (laughs) and uh, make sure the wind it's downwind so that uh, I don't scatter back on you (laughs) I don't want to be sneezed up (laughs) oh yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to think about it, I think. But um, I just think, yeah, big party, lots of good music, bit of bogan dancing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, look, great chat today. So thanks, everyone. And if you'd like to reach out with any questions or maybe even share your idea of the perfect death, you can email us at hello at oldiegoodie.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Uniting is not just an aged care provider. It also provides services across New South Wales and the ACT, including preschool and early learning, foster care, disability support, mental health support, counselling and mediation, youth services, as well as housing and homelessness support. Uniting is here for you at every stage of life. To find a Uniting service near you, call 1-800-864-846 or go to uniting.org.